Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Okay, again, we are in John chapter 6, verse 16. And this is the passage we'll be walking through today. So I just listen, take it in, and uh, let's prepare our hearts and our minds. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone, gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So... As I was saying before, this past weekend, I was able to go to um, Nashville with Rachel. That's my wife, by the way, so if you're wondering. And, um, and so uh, we weren't going to Nashville for the typical thing. We weren't going for the food. We weren't going uh, for vacation, per se. We weren't going uh, even for, like, music or anything. Uh, actually, our sister-in-law just gave birth to a beautiful baby girl uh, named Baby Ivy. Uh, beautiful. Yeah, that's her first name is Baby. Baby Ivy. It's, it's hyphenated. Baby Ivy. And... Uh, <laughs> And it was great. We, you know, we were, we were trying to figure out if we could make it because uh, our schedules just were kind of difficult. And so it happened that we had time to go this past weekend. So we booked our flight to Southwest. Everything was great. Went Friday night. Uh, unfortunately, mixed Olympic, uh, missed the mix, uh, the mix Olympics. Missed the Young Adult Olympics, which I was really sad about because I really wanted to beat everyone else. But it's fine. Uh, the Lord had me teaching me a different lesson for tonight. And uh, so everything's great. We go through security super fast because it's the evening and no one's there and that was fast and we get to our hotel and that's great and everything's great there. Uh, we're only staying for the hotel for one night because we're staying with her family for the remaining evenings. And so her, her parents had come to pick us up and so while she's going to bring the luggage to the car, um, which I feel I should be doing, but no, I'm gonna go get Starbucks which uh, for our coffee fix is a Starbucks inside the hotel. Um, and it was kind of a janky Starbucks anyway, so that I should have known this was going to be a bad store anyway. And so we're, I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, so they don't have this. Can we do this? Okay, can we do that? That's fine. So we're paying for everything. Everything's outrageously priced, as always, because coffee. And so I don't know if you do this uh, thing, but, like, uh, usually I do before I leave the house, but I kind of forgot. But I, sometimes even when I pay, I kind of do uh, this pat-down dance. Like, I go right pocket, left pocket, left pocket. <laughs> But like, like, you know, like to see like what's in my pocket because my right pocket usually has my cell phone, keys, and then wallet. Like that's usually what it is. And then my butt, my right butt just gets slapped, right? Because there's something in there. <laughs> and, and so I did, so I, I, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll pay. And so I was like, right pocket, left pocket, wallet's not there. Wallet's not here. It's okay. I'll do Apple Pay. So I pull out my phone and then I go to pay and then it dawns on me. I don't know where my wallet is. And then so, so fear starts to like creep in a little bit because I was like, it's fine. 
And like you try, like that conversation you have with yourself, like it's fine, it's okay, we'll find this, it's okay. It's like no one's there to have this conversation with you, you're having it with yourself. It's like, it's fine, Caesar, it's gonna be okay. But then like, it, it doesn't. Like my brain does start to freak out because I start looking at my bag, I can't find it. And then I, I look in the luggage, can't find it, go back to the room to literally just up throwing everything. It probably looks like we had a party and they were like, what happened here? But like, it was just, I, I couldn't find it. And then as I get back downstairs, it dawns on me. I left it on the plane. Right? Thank you. And so I, what, see, the, the, the back of the, you know, of the, of the, of the, of the seat where, you know, I put garbage in. Yeah. My wallet's there. Right. So I, I, I intelligently told myself that I would put my wallet and my phone together because there's no, way I'm going to leave without both. But what happened was when we landed, uh, we received our wedding album. And so Rachel and I, as we were like hitting the tarmac, we're like, Oh, we got our, I got wedding pictures. And we're like, Oh my gosh, she looks like so you. Oh my gosh. I love this picture. And then we realized we're the last people on the flight on the flight. And so we we're like, Oh God, okay, we got to go. And so I got our stuff and leave. And that's how I left my wallet there. And this whole time, I'm like, I'm starting now, like it, now that I know that my wallet could possibly be anywhere in America, I start to freak out. I really start to freak out. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to call. I got so many credit cards. I got to call. I got like three credit cards. Like I got, I got to call Chase. I got to call Bank of America. Oh man, I got the Mosaic card. Who am I going to tell about this? Who do I tell God? Like, hey God, my credit card got lost. Sorry. And then the only thing I can think about was, you know, that scene in, uh, in uh, people who watch The Office, there's that scene with Dwight and Jim, and he goes, yeah, identity theft is no joke. Like, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, someone else is going to be Caesar. I'm never going to be Caesar again. Like, what is going on? And, and so clearly, logic and reason had left the building, right? And, and, and then, so I, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, whether it's on a bigger scale or smaller scale. That is, that is my story. So, so here we are, right? And, and, and what I'll say to this is that fear is, and, and no, to no surprise, is a normal part of our day-to-day, okay? And, and I would even argue that God has designed us as humans uh, to experience certain kinds of fear uh, for our protection, right? Like when you see a bear, I'm hoping you, you know, your fear says let's go the other way, right? Like I'm hoping you're not the kind of person, see, there's always one person though, like that has to be on the news, like, and local man gets eaten by bear, like, you know, that kind of thing. But for the most part, that fear exists to keep us from being on the 10 o'clock news. So the issue then isn't, isn't about how often or when we experience fear. I think the problem is as young adults and just even as humans as a whole, we don't know what to do with our fears, and frankly, we don't even know how to handle the events that cause us to fear fearful to begin with. Because we can't just simply, you know, will ourselves to not have fear, right? Like it's, it's an automated response, right? Like, like you see a cockroach, fear, right? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, we know you're scared of, you know, you look at how much money you owe for student debt, Fear. You're like, I'm never gonna live. I'm never gonna leave my parents' house, you know. And or not being on your parents' insurance. When I turned 26, and I was realized nothing gets covered. Medical bills are expensive, y'all. That is scary. Or maybe you're the person, you know, who you know has been sort of talking to somebody, but you're not really sure how they feel, and then they, you know, they ask you, hey, can we define the relationship? And you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. And for some of you in the room, that's probably like absolute terror. And I get that. It's scary. Um, but on a more serious note. You know, uh, you know, even as we spoke about Brian and Amanda today, like I can only imagine the fear that must be in her as she sees her parent battle for their lives in the hospital or what it would be like to receive a medical diagnosis about your child for the parents in the room um, that will alter their life because you don't know what to do as their parent 
or, or telling your friends that you struggle with an addiction or have suicidal thoughts. Fear, it just breeds this fear. And we face these kinds of events that trigger our deepest fears, our worries, our stresses and anxieties on a frequent basis. In fact, some of us in this room may struggle with it on a daily basis. So the question then isn't, how do I avoid fear? Because it, the reality is it's coming for all of us. Instead, the question must be answered is when fear comes my way, what do I do? What do I do? And as we just heard for the scriptures tonight, as we, as we read it before the sermon started, we see that disciples are caught in a storm and they are what? It says here, they are frightened. But it sounds quite normal, right? right? Like this, this storm is brewing and it could drown them. Like why wouldn't they be fearful? But instead of tonight let's, uh, of us focusing on the storm, let us focus on Jesus' response to the fear of his disciples and the change of their hearts in the storm. Let's read again verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. See, in order to get a full picture of this entire story, you kind of have to uh, read Matthew and Mark's account because this account happens in three places, John, Matthew, and Mark. Otherwise you ask like silly questions like I did. Like when I read this, I thought, why did the disciples leave Jesus behind? Like, that seems like a really silly thing. Like, they just saw him feed thousands of people and you're gonna leave, you're like, you're leaving the snack guy behind? Like, why would you, why would you do that? Like, the guy can, that guy can do everything. You've seen him bring people from, from death, heal the lame, heal the blind, feed thousands of people and you're gonna leave him behind. But if you read Matthew and Mark's account, you'll see in Mark 6.45 that Jesus actually sends them ahead to their next location. And Jesus then would dismiss the crowd. He'd say, hey, listen, I, I fed you. Thank you. And he goes to pray and he sends his disciples on ahead. So we read here, the disciples go on ahead. They're just doing what Jesus has asked them to do. And now it's evening. And they're about to go do a rather regular activity, right? They weren't casting out demons. They weren't uh, healing the sick. They weren't um, uh, feeding thousands of people. They were just doing normal fishermen things and, and disciple things. They were just going from one port to another in a normal boat activity. So that the key activity here or the key detail is not that they were what they were doing. It's not that they were fishing or that they were going in a boat. The key detail here is actually what time of day it is. It says here that it was evening. It is dark. And, uh, and if you've been here for a little bit, you might remember that often when John refers to ordinary details like time of events or time of day, it's usually a symbol for a bigger picture. So yes, time-wise, chronologically, it is evening. It is the evening time. He wants that picture in our head. But darkness is not just darkness here. It's usually a bad omen or a symbol for evil. And we see that in verse 18. What does it say? It says that the, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So we see the darkness John painting that picture for us. We see the darkness. We see the storm is brewing. He's really trying to help us see the fullness of what the story is meant to be. And but you gotta just imagine here for a second. It's not just don't think about the storm and think about how dark it is. Think about the situation of the disciples. They're on a wooden boat. 
Okay, these boats aren't warships. Like they, weren't, like, like they weren't meant to weather the storm. At best, they were meant to travel and for, and for catching fish, but that's about it. And yet we see the storm is brewing, so the water is slapping against the sides of the, of the boat. And so think they're just getting battered by the waves. And, and if they're like me, they're probably getting seasick and they're just trying not to puke everywhere. And they're, they're trying to ride through the storm. And, and the thing is, if you don't know about rowing, and it's hard in and of itself, but trying to do it in uneven waters almost makes it impossible. What should take about a five-minute trip will take you almost an hour. And so they're going and they're going and they're in this state of distress. It's dark, it's raining, it's windy, they can't see anything, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. That's the picture here that John is painting for us just in these two verses, three verses. But I can imagine, and I can even ask you guys, how many of us ever felt this way before? Just like the disciples, they're going about a normal activity. We're going about our normal days and then we just get a phone call or we get a, just that text. You know, that, that text that changes your entire life. Or we, receive, or we go to the doctor for an annual checkup and it tells us that we have some kind of disease or we're watching something on TV and something is crazy like, like a Miami skyscraper, half of it falling down as it happened a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago even. Because no one plans for bad news, right? Like no one wakes up in the morning and goes, I can't wait to hear what's about to happen and I hope World War III breaks out. Like no one wakes up that way. Like no one wakes up and like hopes, I hope today's the worst day of my life. No one says that. We get up because we're hopeful that we're gonna have a good day and then eventually sometimes overwhelmingly negative and life-shattering and life-altering events come our way and then the fear comes. And when that happens, there's often this, uh, metaphorically, of course, this looming dark cloud that could begin to hover over us. If you've experienced this, you know, if you're human, you've probably experienced this. And if it's dark enough and and goes on for long enough, it becomes what Christian mystics in the 16th century would call the dark night of the soul. And it is no doubt that many of us have experienced this or people in this room are experiencing it now. Because the dark night of the soul occurs when an extremely difficult and painful event happens in the life of an individual and it causes them to be in a state of spiritual desolation, loneliness, and emptiness. And there's a, a slew of events that could cause this, whether it's your parents getting divorced or church hurt by a leader that you thought loved and cared for you, the, the, the death of a friendship because they rejected you or they abandoned you or they, they just uh, betrayed you. Or think about quarantine, like how terrible was that for so many of our young adults, so many of our, of our people in the height of COVID alone, not knowing what was gonna happen, unable to be with human connection or even just uh, you know the death of a loved one, any of these things can cause this to spur up. And if this is you tonight, if you've heard yourself or put yourself into this place in this message, I just want you to know that, listen, we are here for you. Like, I'm not just saying this as empty phrase, like our team, myself, this community is here to be with you and pray for you. And we hope that the gospel proclamation, excuse me, the, the gospel proclamation of tonight will be a balm to your soul. But if this is not you and you're like, my life is good or I've never experienced something like that, I have two words for you. Just wait. Just wait. I don't don't mean to be that guy. Like, I don't don't wanna be the guy that rains on your parade. I just want you to be prepared. 
Like I, like, I just see too many young adults not prepared for the reality of life. Like, what, like they, they think that their porn addiction will get fixed because they get married or that their marital or, the, or their, their interpersonal relationships will get better because they found someone to, to deal with their mess. Or they think that if they just pray enough in and, and, and groups that no one will see how far they really are from God, I, 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 would be dis, I would be disservicing to you tonight if I said to you that just pretending it's not there will be fine. And it won't because it will come for you and it will consume you if you are not ready for it. Because none of us are immune from the storms of this life because we live in a stormy world, in a fallen and broken world. It's not a matter of what will happen. It's a matter only of when. And so the core theme of, of the dark night of the soul or these seasons, it's not just a night for some people, is a perceived sense of loneliness that leads to fear. Keyword perceived. Because here it says, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. I'll read it again. It says it was dark and that he had not yet come. Not yet was an indication that he was on the way. The disciples, disciples might not have known that he was on his way, but it's clearly, John is making it clear to us. They were not aware that Jesus was coming, but Jesus was intentionally on his way to the disciples in the storm. Jesus might've been nowhere to be seen for them but Jesus had a plan that was coming to them. And we still have to address this idea of darkness though, because, it, there's this, because the idea of darkness in the absence of Jesus is really connected in this passage. Because darkness feels as terrible as it does because it makes you feel so utterly alone that you have to believe that there's no way it can get better. And that's a terrifying thing. Think about your situation. Think about any negative event in your life. If I told you it would never get better, how would you feel? Right. And if I were a betting man, which I'm not, if I were, I would say there's not a single person in this room in the world who enjoys the idea of being utterly alone. Yet barring people who have faced major trauma and are afraid of being abused, even they don't wanna be alone, but they don't know how to be with others. Or even the introverts in the room who are like, I want to be home tonight. 100 people here tonight, it's too much. But even they would admit, I just, I just want real intimate relationship with just a few people, not a ton. But they want connection. And so when darkness comes our way, we begin to believe the lie that we are completely alone in this life. And because we are alone, it's up to us to figure out how we're going to get through the storm. And the way we do that as humans and as individuals is that we self-medicate, okay? And there's many ways that we can self-medicate. Like if, if you look at all the advancements of technology, if you look at Amazon, if you look at our phones, there is a slew of ways that we self-medicate, right? Like, like, like I can order alcohol to my home now. That's wild. Before, like if you were gonna be an alcoholic, you had to go to the, the store and like show to everyone that you're an alcoholic. But now I can be an alcoholic in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the privacy of my own home. And then we self-medicate with sex. I mean, how many apps do we have just to try to find human connection through sexual like, experience? And then we have those of us who take a different route. We cut, 
ourselves, knowing that it'll momentarily help us feel better and endorphins will rush our system. We do it with our food. We do it with our new age practices. We do it with Netflix. We do it with binging TV shows. And then my personal favorite, we just white knuckle through it. I'm gonna speak really quickly to the men in the room. I normally don't do this because I don't wanna, I'm not about to like say you're not men. No, 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 it's not that. I just wanna disavow a lie that we've been told. How many times have we heard that in our weakness and in the fear that you are not allowed to show that and express it? You have to just suck it up because dare anyone see you suffer, they would know you're weak. But men in the room, let me tell you this. That is not the answer. If you take anything away from tonight, just know that our weakness does not make us less as men. It only shows our humanity in need of a savior named Jesus. And this world does not need, trust me, this world does not need more CEOs. It does not need more bosses. It does not need more quote unquote leaders. This world has fallen because that's what we think that we need to be. No, men don't need to be fake supermen. They need to be sacrificial and humble shepherds. That may not bring you fame and that may not bring you glory and that may bring you uh, money, but it'll bring long lasting satisfaction. And so the only problem with self-medicating among others is that we expect these objects or activities to make us less alone to distract us, to numb us. And then once we kind of come out of it, we realize we were just as alone and just as dark as it was before. And then it becomes this never ending cycle more and more and more. And you might be asking me, okay, Caesar, thank you for your TED talk. Now, what does any of this have to do with fear? It has everything to do with fear. These verses have set it up for us to see that these seasons of darkness or these unexpected negative events come to our very front door without asking our permission and bulldoze through and it will cause us to be fearful. I'm not saying it's a sin to be fearful. I'm just saying that what we do in response to that fear can often be sinful. The answer then is not to self-medicate. So then what is it then? How do I endure these seasons that you're talking about, Caesar? How do I deal with these unexpected events of fear and darkness? Let's, let's continue reading. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But then Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So the disciples are alone in the storm, and then finally Jesus shows up. This is here, Jesus comes but yet they're frightened. And this is such an interesting response, right? To, to see Jesus after knowing that he had healed and he had worked miracles for the behalf of people and we see that, he, that they're frightened. But what made them scared? Right, like in the beginning, I said that they were scared because of the storm and that's what's to be expected, right? You see a storm coming, it could kill you. You would expect the scriptures to say in, 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 in all three accounts that they were frightened by the sea. It says that we're frightened by the sight of Jesus. <clears throat> in Matthew and in, Luke, and in Mark, reveals that they thought that Jesus was a ghost. Right, they didn't recognize him. But I get it though, right? Like it's dark and the waves are crashing and the rain is falling. Like 
it's hard. Like, it's hard. Like, they didn't have, like, you know, binoculars that they could see or infrared lenses. Like, they just, it's kind of hard. You see some dude that you, like, you just see somebody walking on water that you've never seen before. I'm going to start to freak out. I'm, I don't know what category to put this in. I've never seen anything like this. But the reality is, is that the storms and dark seasons of our lives often blind us to the face of Christ. Because in fear, again, not a sin, but it can add to the blindness if not dealt with correctly. But it's more than just this. It's that they don't have the category for this kind of power. Right? They don't recognize that it's Jesus. But, but, but if they had known that it was Jesus, right? They would remember that Jesus had just fed over 10,000 people just a couple of hours ago, right? It says 5,000 in scripture, but that's not including the men and, I mean, the women and the children. So over 10,000 people were fed from these few loaves and few fish. Like they, they, they can't fathom that kind of power, but then they see Jesus, well, they see this thing walking in the sea. That's something they've never heard of. That they would, they would never have a category for. In fact, if you, in ancient Near Eastern texts, which is the, 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 the time frame of the scriptures, whenever uh, people reference sea or sky, it, it usually, or the sea particularly, it was, they would understand that the sea was unpredictable and uncontrollable. It was a beast in and of itself. It's sometimes why they call it Leviathan. But no one has the power to control the seas unless it was God himself. You read that in Job as well. So even if they recognized Jesus, which they didn't, they would not have been able to believe it. They're frightened because they couldn't recognize Jesus and couldn't believe that even if it was that Jesus was on their way to save them. But the disciples aren't the only guilty ones of misunderstanding Jesus. Because last week's passage, we ended on verse 15. Verse 15 says that when they came, they, that the people who had just been fed, they came and they wanted to take him by force. They wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. But Jesus said no. And at the very end of this passage in verses 22 to 24, we see that these more people are coming seeking Jesus because they want, again, they want the power of Jesus to work on their behalf. So while they're being drawn to Jesus because of his power, they're misunderstanding all that he is because that's not what Jesus was about. But then again, the disciples, they saw the power in ways that these people had never seen. And instead of it bringing comfort, it confuses them and it frightens them. So the disciples weren't scared of the storm though. Remember that, why? Because they understood it. Brother, you're not afraid of an obstacle you don't get because you know how to overcome it. Let's not forget the livelihood of most of the people on that boat. Peter, Andrew, John, James. They were all fishermen. They've been in many storms and probably crappier, I can't even say that right, and worse. Don't tell anybody I said that, Caleb. Uh, worse uh, ships, right? And they probably feel more comfortable in water than they feel in land. No, it would not bring fear for them because they knew how to handle the storm. But Jesus, this figure, this being, this thing walking out in the water, they had no idea how to make sense of his power because they did not understand that that power was working on their behalf. But you see, because power, it's an amazing thing, right? Powers, we, we were all fighting for it to some degree, even within the church, 
outside of the church. Power is, a, is, a, is, is like a drug. But power without compassion often leads to tyranny. Rome had proven it to them, right? And you look at our human history, Hitler, any dictator, any fallen church leader, we've just seen time and time again, men and women alike falling at the feet of power. And in fact, they probably enjoyed their way down. So why are they more scared of seeing Jesus than the storm itself? They were scared because they could not believe that Jesus had come to save them from the storm or even had the power to save them. The disciples were at the end of their rope. If you read all three accounts, you can piece together that they left around 7 or 8 p.m. And they, and Matthew, it says that, that Jesus had finally got there at the fourth watch of the night, which means it's between 3 and 6 a.m. They have been rowing against this storm for nine hours. They are exhausted they're in the middle, this is three or four miles. Like if you look on a map, they're literally in the middle of the sea. They were exhausted and they were hopeless. And then Jesus walks up to the boat and I often laugh kind of when I see this scene because I can't help but wonder like what Jesus was doing, like what he was looking like. Like, like was he like a buoy? Like, <laughs> like you, you know what I'm saying? Like if he's on the water, is he riding the waves? Like, I can't be the only one. Or is he like this kind of avatar moment where he's just like kind of hovering over it and like nothing can touch him. So he's just like standing still the whole time. I, maybe that's just me, but I, I, I like to really try to make these stories come to life because I, I think that's what, that, that is what God wants us to. He wants us to envision this fully for what it is so that we understand what he's trying to say. But he comes up to the boat and this is what he says in verse 20. It is I, do not be afraid. Um, he declares his presence here. And as some of you may know, I, uh, I recently got my master's in counseling. And so for a couple of years, um, I was practicing as a mental health counselor. I'm gonna give you a trick of the trade. This is a, a quick, if you've, ever struggled, if you've ever struggled with anxiety or fear, or if you know someone or you're helping someone, um, here, here is the one thing that always worked every time. They, they, they would freak out or they would uh, start sharing their fears and I would just look them dead in the eye. I'd say, stop it. Like they, they would be freaking out, right? They'd be, oh, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, hey, whoa, 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 knock it off. That's a joke, guys. I didn't do that. No, no, that's a terrible thing. You don't do that, right? Like you don't look at someone's pain and struggle and be like, whoa, whoa, stop. And they're not gonna be like, oh my gosh, you know what? I paid you this much money and I never knew that myself. I wish I had known I could just stop. No, no one actually does that. But yet, in, in, the, the truth of it is, is I, I was a mental health counselor in a secular sense. We don't do that, but, but there are counselors and therapists who will tell you that that's what you do. You just, you, it's just all in your head. You just gotta knock it off. Don't worry about it. But it's not just the secular world, it's the church itself too, because sometimes what we'll do is we'll, we'll, someone will come in pain and suffering and they'll be like, oh wait, don't worry about it. Jesus has got it. Don't worry about it. Don't be so afraid. And to some degree, there's a little bit of truth of that. I, I do believe that sometimes we, we make an, a mountain out of an ant, out of out man, ant mound. But the, but, the, but the bulk of it, I don't think it's like that. Like imagine as, as Amanda texting me and saying, my dad cannot breathe. My dad is in the hospital and I respond with, don't worry, Jesus got it. How unloving and unkind is that? And I say that because we can look at this text and think, Jesus is saying, I'm here. 
No worries. And in one way, that is absolutely true. And I'm going to unpack that for us because there's movement and power that, uh, um, like, that is unknown to mankind when we understand it correctly. But if we un- misunderstand and misapply it, all we're doing is emptying the power of what God intends to do in the lives of his people. So there's, there's a real trick of the trade that I'm gonna just teach you real quick, something I did learn in class. Um, just put your hand out, it can be your left or right, whatever one you want. And so, yeah, take it out, right? Okay, put it in front of you. Everyone participate, thank you. And so you're gonna take your hand and this little sucker right here, this thumb, put it inside, tuck it in, okay? That's your amygdala. Then these four over here, these four fingers, close them over. That's your prefrontal cortex. Amygdala calls your emotions, Reason, logic, and reason with prefrontal cortex. You can put your hands down. So now when we have intense emotions, it could be happy or sad, negative or positive. What happens is, literally this is exactly what happens in your brain. Uh, you know, you see a cockroach, uh, it flips the lid and suddenly logic and reason is, no, is out the window. It's out. You're like, ah, like, it's like, it's like, I think about this in a moment. It's this big, you're this big. Like, can we compare the size difference? But the reason just goes out the window because you've perceived this threat to, and, and, and here's the thing, and God made it this way. And for good reason, because like, if, if you see a car veering towards you, you don't think I can take that. No, <laughs> you go, I'm, I'm fearful of my life. So I'm going to veer out the way. Like no one, it, it, it flips the lid for a good reason. But when it's intense emotions that won't kill you, this is where it becomes negative. This is where it can go really down south for us. Because when it comes to negative emotions, it's really hard for you to snap out of this cycle. The, the, the lid continually stays open and all you, you're being guided by this emotion. There's no reason for it or to it. And sometimes what we'll do in counseling or in therapy is they do these things called like breathing techniques or grounding techniques because at the heart of it, it's hoping to help tell your body, hey, whoa, 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 hey, whoa, 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 wait, we're okay, we're safe, it's okay, don't worry about it. And I say that because that's exactly what Jesus is saying to the fear of his disciples and what he's saying to the fear of us. He's saying right now, these, 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 these storms of your life, they're gonna cause this lid to flip. And if you're not careful, you're gonna be guided by this, but I need to reason with you. I need to remind you that I am here and I need you to close this back up so you can start realizing that there's nothing to be afraid of. There is safety because I am here. My power is not against you, but it is for you. But there's something else that's hidden in just this one line. I read in a commentary and it blew my mind. The Greek, the way it's written out here is in in English, we write it as it is I, but in the Greek, it is better understood as I am. So therefore it's I am, period. Do not be afraid. Does anybody remember maybe something in the Old Testament that was like I am? Yeah, something like that, something to that effect. Well, it is exactly what John's trying to do. He's trying to make us remember the Old Testament and particularly the, the Exodus story. Because in Exodus chapter three, we find Moses climbing up. You don't have to go get it. Don't worry, I'll read the parts I need to. We're gonna stay here, don't worry. And we find Moses climbing up Mount Horeb and he comes upon a bush and verse two of chapter three says that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. And we come to learn that text that God was present and so he begins to have this conversation with Moses. And he commands Moses to go to Egypt and free the Israelites from captivity and Moses is terrified. He's like, I'm supposed to go I'm mm, not a good plan, right? Like I don't, okay, let's just say I will do, I need to know who's sending me. 
He goes, who, they're gonna ask me who is sending me to do this crazy thing that no one else should be doing. Who should I say sent me? And then in Exodus 3, 14, uh, God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And God continues to say, say this to the people. I am who has sent you, has sent me to you. So now there's a rather confusing name to give for yourself because it's like, it's a state of being, like I am. Like no one walks up that way and be like, hey, I am Caesar. No, you're like, I, my name is Caesar. Like, like, like it's just, a, you can say I am cold, but that's just, that's just how we do grammar, right? But God created language. So I don't think he's like, forgot how to do Hebrew. And so he's making a point though. Because I am is a state of being, right? I am cold, I am hot, I am hungry. Like if it's because something is being enacted on me, something is causing me to feel that or to experience that. If I'm cold, it's probably because the temperature out here is cold and therefore my body is responding to that. If I'm hungry, it's probably because I haven't had enough food and there's absence of food in my, in my belly and that has caused me to want food to fill it. Because when I say I am anything, it's because something has caused it. To me, right? But when God says, I am, by itself, he does not say, I am anything. He just says, I am. There is nothing being enacted on God. See, God is not God because Moses came to the bush and fell upon this bush and said, oh, this must be God. God is not dictated by what Moses said, what the Egyptians said, or what you and I have to say he is. He simply is because he says he is. And some of, the, some of the Christians are like, that's cool. Some of you are like, I don't get it. What's the big deal? Here's why this should be the utmost comfort to you and I tonight. It's because what, what, what this statement is ultimately saying is that there is nothing that can be done onto him that would cause him to move or to shake from who he actually is. Nothing makes him more God or less God. Nothing can add or subtract. Nothing is enacted on him because he never changes. But it doesn't even stop there. Like, I wish we could end because I'm getting tired, but there's so much more. There's this whole setup that John is doing. If you read all of John chapter six and you read the Exodus story, it's a complete parallel. He wants us to know that Jesus will provide a better Exodus story for his people. See, the whole point of Exodus was that God came for his people, freed them from captivity, and any obstacle along the way, God literally just kicked it to the side like it was nothing, like nothing. It was like playtime for God to show his glory and power. And so in Exodus, we eventually find Moses, after he frees his people from captivity, he brings about the Passover, and he guides them through that. He's guided through the desert by God. And eventually though, he, if you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt, you see this momentous scene. Have anyone seen the Prince of Egypt before? Right, it gets real climactic, right? Like they just got to the water and you see like the chariots come in and like, and everyone's freaking out. Oh my gosh, I don't know what's gonna happen. And then Moses just kind of puts his hand out. And so, so, so Moses in Exodus 14 says, he stretches his hand out and the, and the Lord split the sea. But right before he says, before he does that, this is what Moses says in Exodus 14, 13. Do not be afraid. Who just said that? Jesus says, do not be afraid. So Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. Here's what's happening. It's a lot going at you. I get it. 
Jesus has already been proven to be the better and greater Moses. John 2 says it. Even Moses says there will be someone who'll come that is greater than I. Listen to him. He's referring to Jesus. So Jesus is the one who will bring his people out of slavery. He will provide sacrifice and will bring them through the storms and seas of life. But this story is not beautiful if we don't know what he's freeing us from. These slave masters that Jesus is freeing us from is sin and death and fear itself. We know this because when John the Baptist declares the identity of Jesus in John chapter one, verse 20, he says this, he looks at Jesus and sees him from afar and says, behold. Actually, let me, <clears throat> let me do it correctly. Behold! He wants everyone to know this man named Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who frees us from sin and death. Jesus is the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who has power over all creation. He literally walks over the water as a way to mock it, to say that even the seas sit beneath me. There is nothing greater than I. I have the final say. Therefore, when Jesus says, I am to the disciples, he's declaring something that only God can say. He's saying, he's saying, he's literally speaking to everything in this moment. He looks not just at the disciples, I think he's looking at all of creation and he looks at the darkness and he looks at the dark night of the soul and he says, you will no longer blind my children. He looks at the water and says, you cannot consume them because I will not let you. And he looks at the heart of his disciples and says, do not be afraid because you are mine. And if I can conquer sin and death, then nothing else can overcome me, which means that you are safe in the hands of Christ, our King. Now, now the disciples know who Jesus is. They truly know who Jesus is. They were frightened before because they could not imagine that a savior as powerful as Jesus would have compassion for them and that he would provide safety with his power. But now they know that the God of the universe was for them to bring them salvation. And then it beautifully comes in this one place, verse 21, look at what it says. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It says they were glad, but actually the Greek word for this is philo. And glad isn't even the best way to describe it or to translate it. It's part of it. But what really it should say is, then they were willing to receive him and strongly desired him to come onto the boat with them. They were completely frightened by Jesus and now all they want is him to be in the boat. How do you have somebody go from complete terror to total desire? It's because they trusted him. But the only way for that trust to be built is through intimacy and connection. And I love how this story ends. Matthew and Mark, they say that when Jesus gets in the boat, the storm ceases, ends. But John doesn't include that. It simply says that they welcome him onto the boat, they want him on the boat, and that the boat got to its destination. Why would John omit something so powerful? And here's the reason why I think it is. It's because John's intention is not simply to, to prove the power of Jesus. Because again, power without compassion is just tyranny. But he wanted to prove that Jesus wanted and desired to be in the boat with his people. Here's what I'll say. 
Just because Jesus is in your boat does not mean the storm will end. It does not mean the darkness will no longer be there. But you will have somebody who will go with you to the very end. Because the storms of life will come and sometimes they are long. Sometimes they beat against your boat relentlessly. But while Jesus, the great I am, is with us, we will always be safe in his hands. I'm gonna leave us here with a couple of practical things for us to do because I wanna answer that question I posed in the beginning. What do you do with these fears? What do we do when we become fearful? How do we endure our storms? Four things. Remember that the presence of Christ, the one whom darkness cannot overcome, is there with you wherever you go. Go to friends that will constantly remind you of this truth. I'm not saying pray it away. I'm simply saying go to people who will get in the boat with you and they will remind you that Jesus is there with you too. Second thing, remember your place in the heart of Christ. He dearly loves you. Your fear does not deter or deflect his love. In fact, let yourself experience the fear because you don't want to hide in it. What you need to do is experience it and then run to Jesus with it. Let him embrace you in his arms. And then gladly, third part, third point, gladly take Jesus onto the boat. Be like the disciples. Want him there, desire him to be there. And not just during your storms, but during all times because he is faithful to captain our ships and make sure that we will make it to our destination. Finally, trust in Jesus and know that if he can overcome sin and death, there is no storm too great for him. Let's pray. Father God, I am just in awe. I'm in awe, Father. Just remember what this says in Matthew. When, when, they, when Jesus finally got in the boat and everything had ceased, the disciples said this, I now truly know who you are. You are the son of God. And they worshiped him. Lord, would that be my response? Would that be our response tonight? That we invite you into our boat and, and, and when we see that you're there and that your power is there, that your compassion and love for us is there, that you guide us through our fears, that you will help take away our fears, that the only result, the only action that we can take upon our lips is to worship you and to praise you. God, I pray for every single young adult in this room and for every adult in this room, for every person in this room, I don't care what age or what category they're in, I pray that if there's fear in their life, Lord, I would ask you to address it, remind them of the truth, that there is nothing that is far greater than you. Don't, don't let them believe the lie that they have to suck it up or that they have to pretend that it's not there. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So would your strength be made perfect in our weakness, Father? God, I pray that you will work in the hearts and minds of our young adults here tonight. That they will not believe the lies of the enemy, that they will not believe the lies of loneliness, of darkness. You will show them the light, Lord. 
I pray that for those of us who are not in that season, that we would be able to be uh, shoulders to cry on and arms to hold others. I pray that we would freely and truly be the hands and feet of Jesus for those who need it today. Not just in prayer, not just through texts, but tangibly. That we would go to each other's homes, that we would go to each other's jobs, that we would step into the broke and nitty gritty parts of our lives and we would be the light of the gospel to one another. Lord, I love you. I really love you, Father. And I pray that our, Father, our love here tonight would become more real and more true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.